June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases. The time is now more than ever to embrace the breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that can enthrall you, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped, like Amy Tintera's Listen for the Lie. With exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors, captivating sound design, and dynamic performances, Audible brings these stories to life like never before. And as a member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. the governor of Virginia who was convicted of corruption after accepting thousands and thousands of dollars worth of gifts. The worst of all was the belief that much of the public and much of the nation looked at this and think there's another corrupt politician. Getting this money, these loans, these gifts, these trips, I'm wondering how you justify that. Mm-hmm. I mean, these things would not have come to you were you not the governor. That's probably right. What may surprise you is the Supreme Court reversed the conviction. The name Norman Seif may not click with you right away, but his photos surely will. He's photographed some of the most significant cultural figures of the past half century. Many of his photo shoots were also filmed. Big leg woman. (laughs) Keep your dress tail down. It's a collection like no other, but we were surprised to learn that a lot of these films were never developed, sitting in a vault until now. Aborso has become an oasis of opportunity, and every student is encouraged to dream big. I want to be a psychologist. You want to be a psychologist? I want to be a reporter. You want to be a reporter? Yeah. Okay. Dentist. You want to be what? Yes. A doctor? Yeah. Wow. Who wants to be a dentist? You want to be a dentist. Your teeth are very nice already. (laughs) It's worth pointing out just how revolutionary it is to hear teenage girls in Somaliland talk about careers. Many of these girls may have already been married off by their families if they weren't studying here. 
I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm Laura Logan. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. In the wake of last fall's elections, we've heard lots of talk of draining the swamp, of corruption and influence peddling. But amid all the heated discourse, you might have missed an important political story that is reverberating across the country. It's the case of former Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell, who was an up-and-coming Republican star with a squeaky clean image and a record of promoting job growth. But his political career exploded in scandal worthy of a soap opera when he was convicted of public corruption and sentenced to two years in federal prison. He fought the charges all the way to the United States Supreme Court, racking up a hefty legal bill of $27 million. It turned out to be worth it. The Supreme Court reversed his conviction in a controversial and far-reaching ruling, but not without a hitch. Chief Justice John Roberts described the case as, quote, tawdry tales. Tonight, looking no worse for wear, Bob McDonald talks about the case and the moment his world came crashing down when a Richmond jury returned a verdict against him. I listened to 19 guilty verdicts for my wife and me, and all I could do was sob. You broke down. Ah, that's all I could do, Bill. At that point, I was a convicted felon with a criminal record, was going to lose my law license, my right to vote, my passport, my reputation, and other liberties, and my life was never going to quite be the same. Bob McDonald was one of the most popular Virginia governors in recent history. In 2012, he made the short list of Mitt Romney's possible running mates. How are you going to plead, Governor? But in a stunning fall from grace in 2014, just 10 days after leaving office, McDonald and his wife Maureen were indicted then convicted by a jury of conspiracy and bribery. They had accepted $177,000 from a local businessman in personal loans and gifts presented as evidence in court, golf bags and clubs, luxury family vacations, the use of a Ferrari, $20,000 of designer clothes for Marine, and a Rolex watch for the governor. McDonald appealed his guilty verdict up to the Federal Court of Appeals and lost twice. But then his conviction was reversed by the U.S. Supreme Court last fall. The worst of all was the, the, the belief that much of the public and much of the nation looked at this and think there's another corrupt politician. And if I'm one of your citizens sitting at home in Virginia and I see you my governor, getting this money, these loans, these gifts, these trips, I'm wondering how you justify that. Mm -hmm. I mean, these things would not have come to you were you not the governor. That's probably right. How do you tell the guy, the coal miner sitting in western Virginia, that that's okay? You know, I had to make those judgments you know, kind of one thing at a time. And none of that set off alarm bells? It didn't because I knew that it was uh, completely legal under Virginia law. 
Virginia at the time had no limits on gifts to state officials, but McDonald's case stands out because he took so much from one person, this man, multimillionaire Johnny Williams. Williams wanted the governor's help getting state-sponsored studies of his new tobacco-based supplement called Anatablock. He claimed it had healing powers. Williams declined to talk to us, but in court he testified under immunity for the prosecution that he was 100% sure he and the governor had an agreement, money and gifts for political favors. I considered him a, an entrepreneur. He had the opportunity to create jobs for Virginians. He plied you and your wife with huge sums of money and gifts. He says that he did it because he wanted to influence you. What did you think he wanted? He asked to meet with staff people. I referred him to meetings. My job was just to connect people with government, and I considered it a routine part of what I did uh, for job creation and just regular constituent service. Is that what it takes to get the attention of you guys? Somebody coughing up that kind of money? No. But explain to me where that's where I'm, I'm wrong in seeing that. That is an is. everyday action in America, and I know that to be true from years in politics. But it wasn't politics as usual for Jim Cole. He was the deputy attorney general who oversaw the McDonald's prosecution. He used his office for personal gain. The governor says all he did was make introductions. Here is somebody who took over $170,000 to do things that he could only do because he was the governor of the state. The McDonald's actively promoted Anata Block and invited Johnny Williams to events at the governor's mansion with health care leaders and researchers who could help him. There was never a quid pro quo or any conspiracy or any agreement to help Mr. Williams. And um, ultimately, the Supreme Court of the United States said that the government advanced essentially a dangerous legal, legal theory that had serious constitutional problems. What do you mean dangerous? Why, why dangerous? Because it criminalizes routine political conduct, things that happen in this country every day. The justices did unanimously reverse his conviction. They faulted federal prosecutors for overreaching with a definition of corruption that was too broad and ruled that merely setting up a meeting or hosting an event for Johnny Williams did not constitute a crime. But they condemned McDonald's conduct on ethical grounds. In his opinion, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the tawdry tales of Ferraris, Rolexes, and ball gowns did not typify normal political interaction. Far from it. In our interview, McDonald chose to focus on the positive. At the end of the day, the United States Supreme Court said that this was the routine stuff that governors do. And we may not like the amount of gifts, but it was consistent with Virginia law. And so, Bill, that's why at this point I feel, I feel vindicated. Vindicated. That's not my reading of the Supreme Court decision. Chief Justice Roberts said himself, and this is a quote from his opinion, there is no doubt that this case is distasteful. It may be worse than that. So this wasn't an exoneration. They looked at what you did and called it tawdry. Well, I would disagree with that. You've, you've picked two sentences out of a 28-page opinion. But the import of that opinion, Bill, is not the language that you've read. It's the other 99% of the opinion. But what I hear you saying is that I will accept 99% of what the 
Supreme Court justices said, but that 1% that sort of slaps my wrist, no, I'm not that, I'm not, they got wrong. No, I'm not saying that. I accept like that. They found that your behavior was not something that they sanctioned. Yep. The, the words are what the words are. I accept the 100% of the opinion. And so, you know, with my own conscience, that's really between, I guess, me and God about how I did. Dad, how about a game? You're on! Bob McDonald ran for office on a campaign of faith and family values. But when the scandal broke, apparently so did the McDonald's. The alleged husband and wife conspirators started coming to court separately. This was my parish. And, and Bob McDonald moved here, into the rectory of his church. You were in church yesterday, and you were mm-hmm. telling me you're a moral man. I try to be, Bill. Did this meet your moral code? If I do it over again, I was governor, I wouldn't take any gifts. I didn't need them. So why'd you take them? You know, having a family vacation after working 15 hours a day at a nice lake resort with my family. You know, I appreciated that. But you're a public official. Yes. You think the public believes that you should reach a higher standard. I knew in my heart I was governing myself properly, and I knew I was making all the appropriate disclosures. Virginia law didn't require disclosure of gifts to family members, so he didn't report this $50,000 personal loan from Williams to a company McDonald owned with his sister, or most of the gifts, including the $6,500 Rolex watch Johnny Williams gave to Marine to give to the governor. Tell me about the Rolex. I've seen the picture. You're holding the Rolex up. You're smiling. My wife gave it to me for Christmas. Uh, in uh, 2012. With all my heart, I believed it was from her. She told me it was from her. You were telling us that you needed loans, business loans. Didn't you wonder, how did my wife afford a Rolex? Bill, I didn't know what a Rolex cost, to be honest. I'm a Seiko and Timex guy. I've always had been. But Maureen McDonnell, a former Redskins cheerleader who brought her pom-poms to her husband's inauguration, had a taste for the finer things. On a shopping spree in New York with Johnny Williams, he bought her $20,000 worth of designer clothing and accessories. Maureen McDonnell declined to speak with us, but Bob McDonnell, who went with her to New York, told us he didn't notice what she bought and didn't ask questions. If my wife came in with what was it, $20,000 worth of clothing? Mm-hmm. I would notice the bags and the boxes. I would say, honey, where'd you get all this? I knew she had bags. I knew she shopped. Who paid for those was just not something that, that we discussed. I'm just not the kind of person that probably paid enough attention on some of those things. His inattention to his wife became key to his defense strategy. In court, with his liberty at stake, McDonnell allowed his defense team to point the finger at his wife of more than 35 years and tell the jury she was the one taking most of the gifts and, without his knowledge, helping businessman Johnny Williams. If McDonnell wasn't paying attention, the governor's chef, Todd Schneider, was. He told us Johnny Williams was a regular at the mansion. Remember, everybody talks in the kitchen. And what were people saying? Uh, Well, we thought of everything that they did shady. Why is this guy trying to get in here so much? 
the clothes and the gifts and the other things. You kind of knew what was going on. What was going on? Johnny Williams was trying to get his medicine approved, and Bob McDonald and Maureen McDonald were getting their bills paid. There is bad blood between Schneider and McDonald. After the governor fired him in an unrelated payment dispute that ended up in court, Todd Schneider turned over key evidence to the FBI, a $15,000 check for catering McDonald's daughter's wedding. It came from Johnny Williams' account, Starwood Trust. That triggered the investigation of Bob McDonald and the federal case under former Deputy Attorney General Jim Cole. These were not gifts. These were payoffs. People are giving money all the time. People make contributions. The key difference here is that the contributions didn't go to a campaign. The money that came in went into his pocket. That's not normal politics. That doesn't happen every day. You want to take the money out of politics, then take it out of politics. But this is not unique to Bob. McDonald's attorney, Hank Aspill, admitted the evidence in the case looked bad. But he said, it's just the way American politics works. You know, would anyone look at the gifts and loans in this case and say it's a good idea? No, I wasn't happy about having to defend it. But there was no crime. But shouldn't we expect our politicians to have a higher standard? Uh, Maybe so. And uh, there ought to be a better way of reforming politics in America, as usual, uh, than going after my client and accusing him of committing a crime which he didn't commit. What do you think the effect of this Supreme Court decision will be on American politics? It gives much greater room for public officials to commit improper acts, to commit bribery in subtle ways, and it gives them that room to do it without worrying about getting prosecuted. The Supreme Court ruling is shaking things up already. Politicians found guilty of bribery in New York, Pennsylvania, Utah, and Louisiana are now using the McDonald case to fight their convictions. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. The name Norman Seif may not click with you right away, but his photos surely will. He's photographed some of the most significant cultural figures of the past half century. Many of his photo shoots were also filmed. It's a collection like no other. But we were surprised to learn that a lot of those films were never developed and are stacked high in a Hollywood vault. Tonight he opens that vault for 60 minutes so we can have a look at some of his greatest work, shot intimately on film and video. We begin with a photo session of the great Ray Charles. How old were you when you first started playing piano? When you say how old I was when I started to play piano, I could say three years old maybe, you know, because that's what I was. But I'm, I still, I'm still doing the same thing now that I did that day, trying to learn how to play this damn thing. All instruments whip you, believe me. Because sometimes they won't do what you want them to do. Uh-huh. The instrument talks back, you know. It just sits there and dare you to play it. Uh-huh. <laughs> this session in 1985 is an example of Norman Seif's style of taking photos, making his subjects feel comfortable with questions about their music. Have you ever whipped the piano back? Not, 
not not re- you 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 never can overwhelm an instrument. Yeah. Do you understand what I mean? Sure. You will sure. never get out all all of this piano. What's in it? Yes. Right? Yes. The, you know, absolutely. an instrument can bring you to your limits. Yeah, but I mean, isn't that really what creativity, in a sense, is about? Yeah. If you can think of it. Right. See, that's the key. Right. You know, making it cut to create it in your mind. It's the tool for transformation. Yes. Of... Yes. Yeah, you, got, you got it. That's great. what I'm talking about. Yes. That's what I mean. That's a great way to put it. See, now why not think of that? Out of that conversation came this classic photograph, Ray Charles as he'll always be remembered. Yet as Norman recalls, that was not how their session began. He didn't really want to do the job, so when he came in and I was saying, you know, hey Ray, let me walk you over to your piano, here's your chair, your coffee cup, and he was like, get out of my face, I know what I'm doing, and I'm going, oh my God, you know. A few hours later... I'll be back at you again. I'm back at you. We'll it's see. one artist talking to another. So if I'm singing a sad song, I become sad. Right. I become happy when, I, when, I, when I'm into... And then, then you might decide to say something silly and make everybody laugh and you go... Keep your dress tail down. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. So everything has its place, you know. But the name of the game is to be able to get the sound, get the feeling, get the mood of whatever you're doing. And that's what I do. Now you got it. He's sharing completely the secret to how he creates and, and what he creates. But no one's been asking him. So this was what hit me. It's like everyone is responding to the output, you know, and it's great. But the the fascination for me became, can I go inward like that? And what I found to my surprise is artists were saying, please, would you come? He had a way of capturing artists in their most authentic moments. The Blues Brothers, Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi, Carly Simon, Mick Jagger, Cher and Greg Ullman, Johnny Cash... The Jacksons. Steve Jobs in 1984, the year he launched the Macintosh computer. So we're sitting on the floor, and then we start to talk about creativity. He said, oh, I want to show you something, and he sort of jumps up and he runs out, and he comes back and he plops down into this lotus position with the Mac. No one's seen it. You'd seen never it. seen one? No, we didn't even know that. It, I didn't even know that it existed. His picture became the cover of Time magazine in 2011 when Steve Jobs died. There's something distinct about a Norman C. photograph, but in his film, there's also a story. John. This one with John Travolta at age 22. Shake your head, let's look this way. Yeah, okay. The year before the movie Saturday Night Fever came out. He's telling me, uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing a movie. And I said, oh, you're doing a movie? He said, yeah, and I'm, I'm going to be dancing. And I said, yeah, you're going to be dancing. He says, yeah, what do you think of this pose? So, okay, where's that wind? Yeah, yeah. terrific. <laughs> you know, and thank God, I said, that's fabulous, you know. And that pose became the ultimate uh, icon of the dance, yeah. Of disco, yes. right? It still is. Right. Great. <laughs> Norman has been sitting on his archive for most of his career. He hadn't even seen this footage of Travolta until just before he showed it to us. 
It hadn't been developed since it was filmed in 1976. In those days, Norman said he struggled to pay for the film, let alone develop it. And then I got to the point where we were so out of money, I said, let's take the film out of the camera, recan it, tape it up and put it in the vaults. So we have close to a thousand rolls of undeveloped footage with names like Michael Jackson and Stevie Wonder and... Uh, that you've not seen? That are undeveloped. Sitting in a vault in California. Sitting in a vault, but it wasn't in the early days. I was carrying this archive from garage to garage. This is kind of a... Uh, a Hollywood phenomenon. This is the vault where Norman keeps his undeveloped footage, a state-of-the-art facility in the heart of Hollywood. Inside, it's an icy 45 degrees, which helps preserve the film in these fire, theft and earthquake-proof storage units. Yeah, you can do my code, one, two, three, zero. For the past 15 years, his film has been sitting on these shelves, still in the original cans. Let's see what that says. What you see here is about a third of his archive. Steve Martin. Steve Look at Martin. That. Okay. Joni Mitchell here. Okay, so this Two, is... Two, three, four... This is all the sound. Five. Yeah. Fleetwood Mac up there. Fleetwood Mac. Van Morrison. Yeah. So what we'll do Norman is said it'll take close to half a million dollars to develop it all. That's great. He can't be sure it survived the years until he brings it to this post-production facility in L.A. to be processed. uh, Would you mind putting a little uh, sharpening on this? Uh, Push it. Let me see how far you can go. Nice. Let's try to um, reduce that a little bit. He's working with experienced colorist Dave Cole to slowly recover every scene. The sharpening etches the blacks, which I like. Mm -hmm. See, and it looks sharper. It looks as if it was a... Does a contouring. Yeah. Do you still dance? Yeah, well, not like I used to, but sure, uh-huh. I dance. Great, so I can get some shots of you dancing. Oh! Norman Seif said he sees himself not well, as a photographer, but as an explorer of some of the world's most creative people, like choreographer okay. Bob Fosse. Oh, that looks great. He's planning on turning the best of his films into a documentary series. Great! Lift your head up a little. I'm fine, I got it. I'm just at the beginning of my dream. I'm finally at the place now for myself where I feel my true voice has the potential of being expressed out in the world. At 78. At 78. Norman grew up amidst the violence of apartheid South Africa and became a doctor like his father. After three years, he quit, bought a one-way ticket to the U.S. and landed in New York in 1968 with his camera and $2,500, his life savings. I'm looking at this huge city with thousands and thousands of really competent uh, creators on every field, and I'm this guy with this one little camera with the hubris of, like, I can be a photographer, you know. And there was one moment where I went, like, I think I've made a big fat mistake here and I don't see any way out. When you lose hope that's when the despair comes in. But at the same time, I was having so many incredible challenges, and then I started meeting amazing people. When he stumbled across these two in a bar, Norman said he had no idea who they were. Paddy Smith and Robert Maplethorpe were lovers at the time he photographed them. They introduced him to Andy Warhol, who Norman also photographed. He said Warhol didn't say a word the entire shoot. But it was this picture he took of the band in 1970 that made Norman Seif one of rock and roll's photographers of choice. I looked to the left 
and there was a sign on the wall that said for rent. He set up shop on a seedy stretch of Sunset Boulevard in L.A. in the mid-1970s. We shot hundreds of major artists in this place. His old studio, once a magnet for music and movie stars, is now a bar. On my very first film session, which was Ike and Tina Turner, Tina is sitting here doing makeup. Great track. Here's Tina Turner at that table from the session in 1975. So I want to get some close-up shots. Norman asked her and Ike to perform. This was the last time Norman photographed them together. Tina Turner left Ike the following year, ending the abusive relationship. I took the film and uh, developed it and looked at the dailies, and I knew instantaneously what I was going to do from then on. Norman decided to film his sessions, like this one with Lily Tomlin, as often as he could. We even used that shot like this. Uh -huh. Did you ever see it? He said he had a different approach with every artist. That's great. <laughs> Steve Martin's session, for example, began like this. But don't you know, I'm a wild guy, having some fun here tonight. Comedians are the most challenging people uh, at that point for me to shoot because you're not actually in the dialogue with them. They are performing. Okay, another double, please, from the bar. When I work with a comedian, uh, I become their audience. Hey, Norman, uh, I'm getting a little pissed about this, uh, this drinking thing. Sure, I'm on the stuff, but uh, if you don't dig it, hey, I'll leave. You know, you can take pictures of this wall back here all night. Is he messing with you? Well, you never know when you're in the middle of it. Norman Seif told us he remembers all his sessions. But it meant the most to him when he made a personal connection with his subjects, as he did with Ray Charles. You know what? what? I think we got the session. Okay, baby. Hey! Hey! Yeah. I'll give <laughs> Network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. In 2008, a man named Jonathan Starr was 32 years old and running a hedge fund in Boston. He was a millionaire, but he didn't like his job very much and wanted to do something to give his life purpose. He'd heard about a desperately poor African nation called Somaliland that needed help. Somaliland broke away from Somalia 25 years ago. If you've never heard of it before, it's probably because it still isn't recognized as an independent country. Jonathan Starr went there for a visit, and that's when he came up with a kind of crazy idea. He decided to build an American-style boarding school to help kids in Somaliland get into the best universities in the U.S. and beyond. Starr hoped his students would then return to Somaliland as doctors, lawyers, business people, and future leaders. It's not easy to get to the school Jonathan Starr built. 
Somaliland's capital, Hargeisa, isn't exactly a bustling metropolis. There are few flights in, and once you're here, it's a bumpy ride on dusty dirt roads past miles and miles of empty scrubland. The school sits on a remote hilltop in what can best be described as the middle of nowhere. It's called the Abarso School of Science and Technology, a boarding school that's home to around 200 of Somaliland's best and brightest, grades 7 through 12. What's the goal of the school? What's the idea of the school? So the mission of the school is to produce ethical and effective leaders of the country in the future. Future leaders of Somaliland? Somaliland, Somalia, I mean, we don't... The point is there'll be future leaders in this area. And that should be everything. That should be business, government, law, health care. And we have students studying everything. So ultimately, it should work that way. There was no guarantee it would work that way when Abarso began accepting students in 2009. But Jonathan Starr was determined. He moved to Somaliland and has spent more than half a million dollars of his own money building the school, recruiting the students, and hiring the teachers, nearly all of whom he found online. How much money were you offering to pay the teachers? $250 a month. $250 a month to come to Somaliland. We cook for them, we have food for them. You know, if they, if they don't leave campus, they'll never have an expense whatsoever. But there's not a lot to do here. No, there's not a lot to do here. Okay, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. They came anyway. You will get five minutes. Mostly from America. Who can explain? Many had never taught anywhere before. Who else had power? The curriculum at Abarso is not much different from what you'd find in an American school. The intricacies of covalent bonding in chemistry, contemporary world literature, geometry, trigonometry, and pre-calculus. Does it always have to be between the same two atoms? But what makes it harder still is that nearly everything here is taught in English, and most of these kids only speak Somali when they first arrive. Since Starr's goal is to get students into college in the U.S. and elsewhere, he insists on English immersion from day one. So how do you get somebody who doesn't speak any English and immerse them in an English-only program? I mean, it's very, very challenging. To many of them, the transition to go from where they were to here was the hardest thing they ever would have to do. And you just have to slowly piece it together. The school starts in seventh grade, and students begin by tossing around a few English phrases. You mustn't, you mustn't, uh, you mustn't, don't be late in the class. You mustn't, don't be, uh, you mustn't be late in the class. Good. Wouldn't it be fun and Danny? Then there's reading, lots of it. You know something good about me. I know something good about you. All African countries are not poor. By 11th grade, the kids sound like they've been speaking English most of their lives. How do the words, the dirty looks, roll off your backs? Classes begin at 7 a.m. sharp. And the kids have to be on the ball all day and late into the night. That's five and a half days a week, 11 months a year. The kids either catch up and catch on to Jonathan Starr's system, or they're out. We hold them to a very high standard. Let's say you just skip study hall. You're suspended. Suspended for how long? That'll be a day. Students have found their way out of our school for not being disciplined, not doing the things that they've agreed to do. They know the rules of the school. You've kicked kids out? Many. If a kid is kicked out of a Barso, there aren't a lot of other good options. Somaliland spends less than $10 million a year on its public schools. We saw some classrooms crammed with as many as 100 kids. There are few colleges here for graduates to go to. 
Somaliland is doing better than its neighbor, Somalia, which it separated from 25 years ago as famine and civil war plunged that country into chaos. Somalia is still one of the most dangerous places in the world, plagued by the terror group Al-Shabaab. Somaliland, by comparison, is relatively peaceful, though at Abarso there are armed guards and watchtowers. And the entire compound is surrounded with a wall and barbed wire? Yes. It's about 12 feet or so high. Uh-huh. Do you worry about security a lot? We need to be. I don't think it's very likely that something would happen, but if something happened to one teacher, it could be game over for the entire school. The real problem in Somaliland is poverty. This is one of the least developed places on Earth. The economy, like the country's biggest export, livestock, is skin and bones. The main source of income is money sent from Somalilanders working overseas. That's how most students can afford tuition at a Barso, which is about $1,800 a year. A fortune when you consider that the average income in Somaliland is about a dollar a day. Those who can't get money from extended family get scholarships from the school. A Barso has become an oasis of opportunity, and every student is encouraged to dream big. I want to be a psychologist. You want to well, be a psychologist? I want to be a reporter. You want to be a reporter? Yeah. Okay. Dentist. You want to be what? Yes. A doctor? Yeah. Wow. Who wants to be a dentist? You want to be a dentist. Your teeth yes. are very nice already. <laughs> it's worth pointing out just how revolutionary it is to hear teenage girls in Somaliland talk about careers. Many of these girls may have already been married off by their families if they weren't studying here. Somaliland is a deeply conservative Islamic country, and on school grounds, local customs are strictly followed. Abarso has its own mosque, and girls and boys don't mix outside class unless there's a chaperone. Jonathan Starr is not Muslim, but he does have a family connection to Somaliland. His aunt married a man from here, whom she met in the U.S., Starr's uncle, Billy Osman. He was the one who convinced Starr to come for a visit and do something to help. You didn't really know anything about Somaliland. Correct. Did you speak Arabic? No Arabic, no Somali. I tried to learn Somali, but I'm not very good. It sounds like a disaster from the get-go. I also didn't know anything about education. We didn't. We didn't, we didn't <laughs> you didn't know anything about starting well, a school. I, I had. Uh, I'd been educated. I've been pretty, to school too, but I, I still wouldn't be student. able to start one. I just. I had no idea what I was getting into. To help him get started, he took on a Somali partner talked him into building the school in this isolated spot on land that just happened to be owned by the partner's extended family. It turned out to be a terrible idea. If we look out from here, there is nothing, right? There's absolutely nothing and nothing. And like, any way you look. Is there a water source here? No, there's no water source here. That should have been a red flag. So should the name of the closest village, Abarso. Abarso, Abar means drought. That didn't give you pause. <laughs> I had been led to believe getting water would be no problem at all. The water, which is now trucked in daily, was the least of his problems. Despite all his good intentions, all the money and time he'd spent on this school, Starr was still an outsider. When he got into an argument with his Somali partner over who should run the school, he says the partner spread false rumors that he was trying to convert students to Christianity. There were some people who had been riled up, probably given some money to do it, and came to our gates and said, either you know, I go home or they'll kill me. Did you ever think about going home? No, but I also didn't. When I say I didn't take it seriously, 
I was more mad than anything else. Why fight this fight here? There's the noble side. What, am I going to abandon the students? There's no chance. There's no chance. If they were going to carry, they were actually going to have to kill me and carry me out. Like, that actually was going to have to happen. And the second part is the not noble part, which is I'm very competitive, and there was no way I was losing to that guy. That's really the truth. I mean, if I could have somehow legally, cleanly had, like, a death match, I, I honest to God, would have had a death match. I couldn't imagine that there was life if I let this fail. In the end, it was his students who didn't let the school fail. In 2013, a senior named Nimo Ismael was the first Abarso student to get into college. She was accepted at Oberlin in Ohio on full scholarship, no less. When she got in, that turned everything in the country. In the country? It turned everything. At the end of the day, people want good things for their children. And Somalis want things to root for. And they wanted to root for her. You know, they want to root for their kids doing well. Almost 90% of that first graduating class got accepted into international colleges. Some 40 of STARS students are now in American universities on academic scholarships. Nemo is finishing up at Oberlin. Fadumo's at Rochester. Her sister, Nadira, is at Yale. Mubarak is at MIT. And Abdi Samad's at Harvard. Do each of you plan on going back to, to work somehow for Somalia? I think um, the whole reason Jonathan is doing this is for us to make sure that people back home or like people that are less fortunate also get the same opportunities that we get. So what would be a life goal? I think the Supreme Court is definitely the place for me. I Being on the Supreme Court in Somaliland? Yes. How about for you? Probably like building a hospital and bringing a lot of equipment and bringing doctors. After like maybe like a few years working here, go back, start like my own business. Creating more opportunities for girls and seeing more girls in school. Empowering girls and women. Yeah. Mubarak Mohammed was part of the first class to graduate at Barso. He's now a senior at MIT, majoring in electrical engineering and computer science. When you heard that you got into MIT? <laughs> yeah, that, that was insane. That was insane? Yeah. <laughs> Has it been hard? MIT is hard. It is really hard. But the thing is, it is hard for everyone. His English isn't as good as most of Barso's students, but his story is remarkable. He was a nomadic goat herder for much of his childhood and knew nothing about school or the world beyond his herd until he ran away. When he showed up to take the entrance exam to a Barso, Jonathan Starr saw his potential and gave him a scholarship. He's pretty smart, to be fair. <laughs> he has a terrific brain that just needed a chance. The success of Mubarak and the other graduates has encouraged the students still at Abarso to work that much harder. So how many of you want to go to college? You all want to go to college. You all want to go to college. Yes. How many of you want to go to college in America? You all want to go to college. <laughs> Any of you think you could be the president, Somaliland? With this? We will try to be the ministries of education, ministries of something, and we will absolutely going to try to run the country. So, what's the reward for you? I mean, before I did this, to me, I was a disappointment. Again, I'm not. You'd run a hedge fund. You'd made millions of dollars. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, look, I, I definitely like have a bigger ego than the average human being. Like that's that's true. Like I have a high view of what I'm capable of doing. And I, as the 32 years old, when I was first starting this, did not feel like I had lived up to that. And now I feel like I'm, I, I got there. Do you see this as something you've done, or do you see this as something 
these kids have done. I gave them a chance to win, and then they went in that classroom and they won. The next group of Abarso students headed for American colleges may not get here. The State Department does not recognize Somaliland as a country independent from Somalia, and President Trump's travel ban, held up in the courts, includes Somalia. In the mail this week, viewers' comments on Steve Croft's interview with former New York Mayor Mike Bloomberg. It wasn't the billionaire's politics that raised eyebrows, but his theology. When considering the things he did as mayor, such as banning smoking in restaurants and bars, he lightheartedly said that when he gets to heaven... I'm not sure I'm going to stand for an interview. I'm going right in. (laughs) Hey, Mike, everyone has an interview upon arrival at the pearly gates, even white male billionaires. There's the little adage that it's more likely a camel will pass through a needle than a rich man through the gates of heaven. And then there was this... Michael Bloomberg is a self-made man and worships his creator. I'm Bill Whitaker. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince... And he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Always on the go, now you can take CBS Mornings with you. Wake up to your daily dose of news and interviews with today's leading figures in politics, business, and entertainment in the CBS Mornings On The Go podcast. It's available every weekday wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, John Stewart here. I am here to tell you about my new podcast, The Weekly Show, coming out every Thursday. We're going to be talking about the uh, election, earnings calls. What are they talking about on these earnings calls? We're going to be talking about ingredient to bread ratio on sandwiches. I know you have a lot of options as far as podcasts go, but how many of them come out on Thursday? Listen to the weekly show with John Stewart wherever you get your podcasts.